The opinions expressed on this show are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Funeral Radio's management or sponsors. Welcome to A Good Goodbye with certified thanatologist Gail Rubin. She says talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Gail Rubin. If you were to capture the legacy of your life in one small story, what would that story be? And how would you write it? Ellen Gelb, the author of Having the Last Say, is with us today to answer those questions. Welcome, Ellen. Hi, Gail. How are you doing today? Excellent. Like we say, every day on this side of the sod is a good day. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) And we do have a lot in common. We're both baby boomers, we're both Jewish, and we're both on the cemetery committee for our synagogues. (laughs) We have, as they say, we have a basis. Yes. (laughs) So you wrote this book, Having the Last Say, Capturing Your Legacy in One Small Story. How did the idea for this book form and what's it designed to do okay well let me take the first part of that question uh for a number of years now i've been working with high school students on their college admissions essay i have a book that's been quite successful called uh, conquering the college admissions essay in 10 steps and essentially what they have to do is a is a life review exercise in about 650 words they pick a moment out of their life to um uh, reflect them in the best possible way to the admissions counselors. Um, what I've done in my book for them is to show them how to tell a powerful story, what the elements are of a powerful story, and I've developed an exploratory process to help them find a topic. So I, I was, uh, as I get older, as we baby boomers get older, I find myself sitting more and more in memorial services and thinking about aging, and I when I'm sitting in these services and always appreciating what people are saying about the, the uh, person who's no longer there, I found myself feeling like I wish I could hear the voice of that person one more time. And that was sort of like an aha moment where I realized that I could take what I did with these young people, which is a life review exercise, and apply it to people our age to also help them capture an ethical value that they've lived by. So that's a hook. And I'll talk about that in a moment, the ethical value part of it. And so I have uh, my adult students now are writing 500 to 1,000 word narratives that capture this uh, piece of who they are with the idea of leaving a keepsake for people in their lives uh, or even to have something read at their own memorial service. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about life reviews and living wills that's that sounds like a really daunting assignment how how do you do that well um the life review part of it is um and that's the part that i'm primarily concerned about is done by um this exploratory process that i've described i have about 30 questions in the book and and um they are meant to be um answered um quickly uh what they're they're sort of all over the place and uh what you do is you uh uh, look for common themes and relationships that come out through these questions and you find something that really hooks onto this idea of an ethical value because this whole thing 
uses the ethical will, which is a, a, a tradition within Judaism, as 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 a platform. The ethical will was a document dates back to Genesis that was uh, designed to pass your values onto onto your descendants. And so we take that idea and we look for one moment in our life that we think really captures that meaningfully. And that's really all you have to do. You don't have to sum up your life. You don't have to come away with, with, with uh, you know, the ultimate answer. You just have to examine a piece of your life that you think is really significant and that you feel others will find significant. I understand the ethical will actually traditionally was not written by people until they had passed the age of 50 because you didn't have enough life experience to be able to write anything of any consequence. That's correct. And that's and the over 50s are my audience for this book. That's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What were some of the questions that you offer to get people to start thinking about their, their legacy? Yeah, as I was, as I say, there's they're surprising questions. They're provocative. Uh, they're things like you know when when has your mind and body ever felt in perfect harmony? Uh, if I had to replay two or three moments in my life, which ones would they be? If I had to imagine a place in the world where I feel totally at peace, what is that place? Have I ever felt betrayed? Have I ever felt rage? Uh, what relationships have I worked at the hardest? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Really meaty questions that you really have to r- wrestle with. Uh, you do, but I'm, I encourage people to answer them very sort of viscerally, you know, not to not to sort of uh, have this be a, an onerous assignment, but really, you know, kind of from the gut. Mm-hmm. And how long do you want these stories to be? The stories are intended to be between 500 and 1,000 words. Why that, why that uh, space? Uh, there are two reasons for that. One is that I think that's a, uh, a workable s- size for most writers. And this really, Gail, is, is geared to uh, the uh, unidentified writer. You don't have to be a writer. You don't have to be into memoir writing or journaling or anything of the like to um, take on this assignment. Uh, so, so 500 to 1,000 words, I think, is doable for most people. The other thing is that it's doable, something of that length, for the person who might be delivering it at your uh, memorial service, uh, your designee for that task. Uh, most people are not that equipped to uh, deliver, um, you know, a, a lengthy oration unless they're Barack Obama or uh, you know somebody <laughs> like that. So this is a f- five minutes that you can, um, you know, deliver effectively if you're asked to do that. Mm-hmm. And. Really, most of this book is about the process of writing. Correct. Uh, and so somebody could take this book and learn how to actually focus on a story from their life and write it out. Well, yes. I mean, it's very much a book about writing, as was the college essay book that I uh, I did. And, you know, interestingly, uh, of the books out there on the college admissions essay – uh, Amazon only ranks mine among books about writing because it's very much that's a whole orientation. A lot of the other books are sort of how to outpsych out the admissions people, but mine is really a book about writing, and it, it goes back to that idea of explaining what the narrative is because the narrative is really a form, like the golf swing is a form or a, a tango step is a form. 
there are, are elements to that form, and I've distilled the four elements that I think are most salient. And when you understand that, when you say, wait a minute, a story has a form, and if I can understand that, I can actually try to tell a story in the right way, because we all know people who tell stories well and people who don't tell stories well, right? There's mm-hmm. a reason for that. So that's the first thing that the book does. It identifies this form. And then secondly, it takes you through the um, the, the steps of, of writing a piece, you know, from first draft to second to third to polish. What happens in each one of those steps? The focus of each step varies from one to the other. And this is not something that one would want to do under duress of grief, like writing about somebody else if you're writing a eulogy. Um, you know, I, I haven't tried to apply that. Maybe that will be the sequel. <laughs> uh, you know, having the last eulogy or whatever, I don't know. It's, it's sort of an interesting thought. But, um, you know, I, I mean, a eulogy could certainly lend itself to a narrative form as well. So, you know, but doing anything in grief is obviously very difficult. So I wouldn't ever save a piece of writing for that situation. Well, you know, there's an interesting uh, philosophy, at least in the Jewish tradition, that the bereaved, the closest family members to the person who died, should not get up and speak at a funeral for their loved one. Um, But more and more people are doing it, apparently. Yeah, it's so powerful when they do it. I I remember my... uh, my oldest son speaking at his grandfather's funeral, and uh, and I felt like you know that was a great gift for him to be able to, you know, articulate his thoughts at that moment. Mm-hmm. I know. And I've delivered eulogies for you know on a couple of uh, situ- um, a couple of times for very close friends, and I felt it's such a powerful thing to do. I mean, it's really like a, a call to action, you know. Uh, I guess a good one would be that, you know, not only are we saying good things about the person who died, but the lessons that we can learn from their lives. Very much so. You did put stories throughout this book, uh, your own as well as other people's who uh, took your challenge to have their last say. And uh, I would like you to read your story that you actually put in the book. Yeah, Gail, there's about six or seven stories in the book, and um, they're all wonderful, I think. But when I started this, I realized that I had to do one to model uh, this for other people. So um, I will read my story, and then I'll tell you why I chose it, okay? Sounds good. Good. There I stood on the main concourse of Grand Central Terminal at the information booth as planned, holding a bag of hot pretzels from Zaro's, looking around in every direction. It was Friday afternoon of a long summer weekend, and everyone seemed to have somewhere to get to. It occurred to me that Noah might be late, but then I saw him, my son, coming toward me in the surge of people. Nineteen years old, baseball cap, tattered jeans, flip-flops, duffel bag, smile, wave and off we went to board our train, finding seats that faced the right way, and settling in for the two-hour trip to Wasaic, where we would pick up our car and drive the extra hour home. Following the pretzels and a few perfunctory replies to my questions about his summer internship, Noah fell asleep. In that July heat, the drool collected at the corner of his shiny lip, just as it used to in his stroller. 
I kicked off my shoes and looked around at all the men in their summer gabardine suits, jackets folded and stashed away, ties loosened, laptops out. I closed my eyes too, and then, in that damp half-state, between sleep and waking, my mind wandered to memories of my own father, a man in a gray flannel suit, who every now and then would take me to the city with him on the commuter train from Scarsdale. In such moments of rare, uncomfortable proximity, my father would attempt to instruct me in worldly skills like the proper way to fold the New York Times. For my father, who based his life on mastering rituals, this action was as prescribed and formal as the folding of a military flag. I watched and ignored in equal measure. What had I taught my sons, I wondered, as I drifted through the half-sleep. Then there was a startling whistle and a few minutes before the train was due to arrive in Wasaic. Noah and I gathered our things and stood in the aisle. Behind me, a man approximately my age was craning to look out the window and seemed agitated. He asked me which station this was and when I told him, he said that he had slept right through Dover Plains, the station before, and he didn't know how he was going to get back to his car. As Dover Plains was only a few minutes detour, I offered to drive him. Along the way, we chatted. He told us he was a professor of art at Yale. I told him I was a writer. When we dropped him off at the car, he thanked me profusely and said to Noah, your father is a gentleman. Back on the road, heading north on 22, Noah and I drove in silence for a few miles. Finally, he spoke. He spoke. Why did you do that, he asked with an edge of annoyance in his voice. I knew where the edge was coming from. He was challenging me to tell the truth and was wary that I might not produce one. You must always, always do the good thing, I said. And that was enough. With a sideways glance, I saw him thinking about it. Then he put on a CD, and for the rest of the trip home, we listened to Dylan. And that's the story. Wonderful story. Yeah. And so why did I choose this moment out of my life? It's it's funny. You should ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, th- when this happened, it always it always stuck in my mind, and it, it would reappear every now and then in my mind. And I was never really sure why it held a power for me. And then when the time came uh, for me to model this essay, I seized upon that moment and I explored why it was important to me. And um, I think the reason why it was important is because it was such an overtly teachable moment. And we all, you know, those of us who have children, you know, we all have so many moments in our lives with our children and not so many jump out as being, you know, the good teachable moment. And it was the value that I wanted to impress upon him. And it's a value that I think I've lived by. So I felt um, that this essay allowed me to to do that. It allowed me to explore my relationship with my son it allowed me to explore my relationship with my father. So um, it was a, a good essay for me to work on. And and the take-home messages, you should always do the good thing or the right thing? The good thing. Hmm. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very big difference, I think. <laughs> although, although right things can be good things, but, you know, right things aren't necessarily feel so good. And some of the other essays in the book, or the the last essays, were, um, I remember one about a gentleman who liked dancing. That's right, a man who was married to a woman who had uh, suffered from stage four cancer for many years, and uh, and he 
kind of took solace in dancing and he actually taught dance to uh, women who were cancer survivors. And But the essay was really about going back to his, um, uh, how he learned how to dance from his mother. And, you know, the ethical value in that story was um, about kind of turning something difficult in your life into something that was uh, joyful as well, mm-hmm. that the two could coexist. And there was another one, a woman who was from an Italian family who became Jewish, and she she sprinkled a recipe through her story. Yeah, that, that was a really good one, too. And she uh, is making this recipe that goes back to her childhood. Her, her family were Italian greengrocers in Philadelphia, and it's, it's a sort of a simple recipe of making zucchini with tomatoes and cheese and Sounds wonderful. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and she uses that as a framework. A lot of my college students have used that framework work as well. They take a simple uh, action, like it could be anything from running to swimming to knitting to you name it. In this essay, it's, it's a recipe. And they use that as a framework that they sort of pull through the story in bits and pieces, and they intersperse that action with reflection. So she was reflecting on on her upbringing, on her uh, conversion to Judaism, and and how that changed her life and her relationship with her family. It was actually a lot of profound stuff in a small in a small space, and that's what I am um, always sort of in wonder about: is how much how much content and, and meaning can be packed into into something of this size, which is. Not very big when you consider how many words people might start out writing and then rearranging and editing it down and taking well, out. That, that's where the that's where the uh, understanding of the form helps so much because if you understand, like one of the elements of the of the form that I identify is you know what I call the once. You know where do you pick up the story? You know so much of your uh, extra story, the stuff that you can actually get rid of often appears at the at the beginning when you know you're sort of trying to get into the story but you don't need your reader to know that so you know you can start at a much later point usually in a story and not sacrifice anything as in great speaking and writing sometimes just starting in the middle of the action is that's right is, in media race yes <laughs> Well, Alan Gelb, author of Having the Last Say, Capturing Your Legacy in One Small Story. I'm guessing this is available anywhere you get books. That's right. And it's on my website at havingthelastsay.com. And you can click right onto Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or wherever you like to shop. And uh, that's an easy – and also you can read some of the other essays on that website. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you for being on A Good Goodbye I'd like to remind my listeners, if you would like to get a free planning form to get all of your information together, and maybe you should write down some of these stories yourself, uh, you can go to my website, agoodgoodbye.com. Remember, talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. Start a conversation today. Mm -hmm. 